Welcome to the Punk Rock MBA podcast. Really quickly, before we get into this episode, I wanted to mention my Patreon. Patrons get all the podcasts a week early. I do giveaways, I do some other stuff, but most importantly, if you want me to review your music or artwork or anything else, Patreon is the way to do that. Every month I do a call for submissions. All you need to do if you want me to review something is just post it in the comments of that post. Then I will review it live on Twitch for the hundreds of people that tune into every stream and post it on Patreon for everyone to check out. All you need to do is just join at the $10 and up level. Stay tuned for that post and you are good to go. So if that sounds cool to you and you want me to review your music, artwork, or anything else, hit the link in the show notes for this episode. And thank you very much to everyone who supports over on Patreon. Johnny, welcome to the show. Thanks for making time for this. No problem, man. Thank you for having me. Let me, let me just kind of set the, set the tone for everyone who's listening. So the reason I wanted to talk to you is because um, addiction and mental health is something that uh, I feel very strongly about. It's something that I have personal experience with myself, a lot of people in my family. You know, my mom was an alcoholic. My stepsister died of an OD. My dad was a junkie. You know, my uncles all went to prison for drugs and shit. So something that I have have a lot of experience with in a lot of different ways. I know you do too. And my audience does too. So my my goal in talking to you is really to help people understand addiction more, whether that's for themselves or someone close to them or whatever, just to understand it. Yeah. Um, and, and if they need help, you know, and they want to make a change, then hopefully we can help them do that too. So that's why I wanted to talk to you. Um, but, you know, obviously you are a controversial guy. You've been involved in some stuff, you know, that we'll talk about. So uh, I'm going to answer, I'm going to ask, you know, tough questions about all that stuff. I know you're prepared for that. So, but really the addiction thing, and like, I don't want this to be so much about, you know, drama as much as we can avoid it. Like I really, the reason I want to talk to you is to help people with addiction. So that's sort of the context. Um, and I guess with that being said, what are you up to these days? I mean, mainly... Uh, aside from work, I've really just been, um, you know, focusing on just getting my home life um, back together. You know, I'm dealing with separation. Um, you know, we have a kid, stuff like that. So I've just been really focusing on these last couple of months on getting myself clean, getting myself sober, um, getting my home life situated now that I'm single, um, you know, putting my house back together, getting things inside of my home, Um you know, just normal, normal stuff, you know, bookshelves, stuff like that. Just putting my house together, really just focusing on um, everyday life. Um, music wise, uh, I got a CD that we haven't even dropped yet. Um, we're going to drop that pretty soon. It's just an EP. And then I'm working on other projects with the dude named Keep My Secrets and Nodis. Um, just lo- lots of good stuff music wise coming as well. Got it. So you, were you were you married or just living together or what was what's the situation just out of curiosity? Um, we were engaged. Uh, okay. we, were, we were living together, yeah, and we've been living together here in Sacramento since about last March. I asked her to leave about two months ago. I would say a little bit over two months ago. I asked her to move out. Got it. Well, I guess uh, you know I'm going to start with uh, some tough stuff just to get that out of the way because I know you know. I, I, I got to ask you that stuff. I remember a couple of years ago, you parted ways with slaves. I don't know if, you know, they kicked you out or you left or if that was mutual or what it was, but, you know, there was some kind of allegations going on there. What was going on then? Like, what were you accused of? What's your side of it? Like, tell us about that. When I was in slaves, all those allegations stuff had already been going on. 
for a while before I even left state, uh, slaves. I actually kind of parted with slaves because, you know, I was living with Taylor at the time. We were together uh, living in San Antonio. Uh, I was using, I wanted to get clean, you know, super bad. I, um, you know, we, I talked to Donovan Malero a bunch because he was our booking agent at the time. We were trying to get me on the shot that I'm actually currently on. We tried to get me on that. Um, I really wanted to get on it, man. I really wanted to get clean, but I just couldn't do it. And I got to the airport. I flew all the way from San Antonio at five in the morning, landed in LAX. Um, I just kind of got off the plane and I'm like, there, there's not a single person I could call right now that will talk me out of getting back on a plane and going back home. Like no one that I could literally be like, Hey, this is a really bad idea, man. Like obviously besides the band dudes, um, you know, I was just afraid to talk to anyone about it. So I made a horrible decision and I just got right back on a plane and I flew back to San Antonio to continue using, um, cause I was scared. I didn't want to be on a plane and go through withdrawals. Um, I was scared to go to Europe and not be able to find drugs and be sick over there the whole time. I had done that once before when I was in Amorosa and it was just a horrible time. So, um, it was just really scary. And I just, I made a horrible decision and of course I regret it, but, um, I'm glad cause I, I think it worked out best for both of us. I love those dudes that are moving forward in a, in the, you know, great, moving forward in a great direction. And I like where I'm headed right now. I like being able to focus on myself. Um, as far as like the other allegations, if you want to talk about those, like ones with the exes and stuff like that. Yeah. Honestly, like I don't even know about all of them. I don't think. Um, so you tell me, I know about some of them. Yeah. The main allegations, uh, ones that I cared about really, the only one that I cared about was just the rapes, the rape allegations. And the gist of it was I was dating a girl for a long time named Chelsea and we kind of went back and forth. I ended up in the hospital and I was bouncing back and forth between these two girls, her and Liz. And, you know, I ended up just cheating on one another, you know, with them. And that kind of got a little messy. I had a really bad ex in the past and she just hasn't been able to let go. And I think it's been probably like eight or nine years. and She still just is, you know, constantly talking about me constantly, just whatever it is. She's just always up in the business, man. And, um, yeah, she she did everything she could to make sure that, you know, they all were on the same page. They all talked about it. And uh, from my standpoint, I understand, um, you know, I didn't give any of them closure. None of them. I just kind of was, the, you know, you got to understand that you're using drugs. And they all knew I was using drugs. They knew that I was a drug addict before they started dating me. You know, this is not anything new. It was never anything new. I don't understand why they started to kind of act brand new about it. But, you know, you got to understand is like, what did they really expect from me? You know, I was shooting heroin multiple times a day. Like I wasn't going to be Prince Charming. The relationships were were toxic at best. And, um, you know, I'll admit that I was not a great partner. I, mean, I wasn't a great boyfriend at the time. I didn't care about their needs. I wasn't receptive to anything that they wanted me to do. Um, when it came to trying to work on things, I just kind of was extremely selfish and, um, I'll admit that stuff, but you're not going to, I mean, when you're strung out, there's only one thing you care about. Yeah. It's drugs. You know, I don't, I didn't care that, you know, they wanted me to get clean. I didn't care that they sat there and they cried. You know, I didn't care. They begged me and begged me. I didn't care about none of that. How do you feel about that now? Do you care now? Like, do you yeah, of course. feel, uh, do you feel bad for hurting people or what are your thoughts on that now? I do. If I wanted to like, 
like I said, you're not going to put rape on my name because that never happened. You know, were there any criminal charges there or was this just none, like none? They they came out with all that online and we we made a statement because a lot of people say, how come you didn't say anything? How if you know, if you're not if you're innocent, why didn't you, you know, stand up for yourself? And for me, it was just like, I don't need to address things that aren't true. You know, what, what we did was we made a statement when when the, when it first happened, I was still in slaves. So we made a statement as a band saying that we were willing to work with any and um, all law enforcement um, agencies that had any questions for us. If they were going to take, you know, those allegations and make them what they wanted them to be, if they were true, we were willing to make sure we spoke to anyone and everyone. And of course, we got no calls, no emails, no nothing. You know, nothing ever happened about it. It was all just to, um, you know, make sure that slaves got dropped from Warner. And it happened. You know, um, Amanda, which is the first first ex, she made she called everyone at Warner from janitors to whoever she could get a hold of, man. And finally, Warner was just like, who what's what is this? What's going on? Because we were on the uh, sister label of Warner. And so they were like, what's happening? What is this? Like, why do we keep getting all these random emails and phone calls and so that was the goal and it happened. And, um, you know, if that was my karma for being a shitty, uh, a shitty person in that time, then I guess I have to accept that I got to take accountability, man. I think that's what a lot of people, you know, who were not happy that I was going to be interviewing with interviewing yeah. you. That's the thing that most of them brought up. And I wanted to make sure we covered that because that's, you know, that's serious. And what a lot of people would say is, well, there might not have been any criminal charges, but it's very difficult to prove that sort of thing. Maybe they didn't want to, you know, have their dirty laundry aired in court or something like that. What would you say to someone who would bring that up, which I think is a fair thing to say? I think it is, too. I, w- I understand that completely. But I think that the chances of uh, the same thing, literally the same story for all three women I think that that's a little far-fetched. A lot of people don't understand because a lot of people don't take drugs. They don't understand. Opiates um, kills your sex drive 100%. So um, a lot of the issues that I had with, you know, dating these girls is obviously I, I, you know, I never wanted to have sex. So I wasn't, you know, that's something that, you know, intimacy is huge in a relationship. And when you don't have that, you know, it gets a little strained because they think then they can feel like they're unwanted or I'm trying to look for it somewhere else. So that was just I think that that's to me is just kind of made sense. It's like it, it didn't. I don't know. We wanted to speak with anyone, man. Like we were willing and ready if if that was something that they wanted to pursue. But I think that they realized, like, you can only take that so far. If it came down to it, honestly, I, I understand a lot of, you know, the pain and um, I guess you trauma, however you want to say it. Um, that I caused, especially, you know, dating an addict. But like I said, they knew I was an addict from the beginning. And the people I would like to obviously apologize to is I would like, you know, if I had the chance, I would say sorry to Chelsea and definitely her mom, you know, because they saved my life when I was in the hospital. They took me to the hospital. You know, I had the abscesses on my spine, all that when I was in Texas. It's all online. You can read all about that a while back. But, you know, they I owe them a lot. And I never got a chance to say any of that. So, but... Like, I, I understand that these are serious, man. You, you, you say, you say that word um, and it becomes serious no matter what, you know, whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. Um, and what sucks is it all falls down in the category of he said, she said, and that's what really sucks too, is like, you can lose really close friends. You can lose family over something you've never even done. You can lose opportunities. And what bugged me the most is it wasn't really the fact that like they said it about me and like all this stuff happened and now all these people think I'm a rapist, whatever. 
what really sucks is it didn't only hurt me. You know, it hurt people in the band. It hurt people's dreams that they that they dreamed of their whole life, you know, to be on a major label. It hurt, you know, parents of these people that were in the band that wanted to see their son succeed and stuff. And all of that kind of fell on me. And that was kind of heavy as well. So it kind of sucks. It's like I could take that heat because I'm used to that. I guess I could say since the MacBook stuff and all that, like I get that. I understand the Internet and how it works. And like I can kind of push that to the side. It sucks is because some of them couldn't. Um, and that kind of really strained a lot of my relationships. The other uh, thing that I was aware of that was most serious is, I guess, in 2020, you got arrested for, you know, domestic violence. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I did look that one up. I was able to find some court records on that. Yeah. I saw the charges were dismissed. Can you talk about that? It was with Sydney. I was about to leave in like four hours to go to Arizona to go to work, to go finish recording. I was drunk. And me and Sydney were arguing and Sydney has a tendency to break my stuff. So I was afraid that she was going to get my PlayStation again. And so I tried to take my PlayStation and put it in my bag. And she went to, she went for the PlayStation and I just didn't think, man, and you should never lay your hands on a woman regardless, but I just didn't think. And I shoved her. And, you know, in California, um, when there's a call for domestic violence, no matter what, somebody has to go. They take they take somebody. It's it's the law. So I had to go, you know, even just for a shove. Like I said, even though you shouldn't put your hands on a woman, regardless, that was the gist of it. I shoved her without thinking. She came to the court and, you know, talked to the court and told the court it was a misunderstanding and they let me out. They dismissed the charges. Got it. I saw there were like two pre-trial hearings or something like that. And that's yeah. what those were about. Yeah, they just... One of them I missed because I ended up, I actually had a anxiety, a panic attack when I was in um, the jail or whatever. And then the second one I made it to and they let me out. So, so, and that was because she showed up before the court and said it was a misunderstanding and they dismissed it. Yeah. Got it. Okay. I want to talk about the MacBook thing, um, which to me is not as serious, but is there anything else serious that we should talk about before we move on to that? I want to make sure that we address that stuff and- you know, for the sake of the audience, because I know they're going to want to hear about this stuff if there is anything else. You know, I just want to make that really clear. It's like I, I understand the severity of the situation. I always have. And, you know, I will completely take accountability for a being, you know, a toxic partner while using drugs. You know, that that's just what I what happened. That's who I who I was and in that moment. And it sucks because that's not really who I am as a person. But, you know, drugs do really horrible things to you. But you're not going to throw rape on my name and I'm not going to accept that. And unfortunately, you know, that, that is an allegation and stuff and that's fine, but that's not something that I do. That's not my MO. It's not going to take me out like that. Got it. Well, let's talk about the MacBook thing. This is something that people, whenever your name comes up, people still bring this up all the time. Um, and you know, we, we can talk about exactly, or you can talk about exactly what happened, but my understanding is, you know, you scammed some people selling fake MacBooks to get drugs which is not a cool thing to do. No. But it was like, what, 11 or 12 years ago now or something like that. It People was. still bring it up. But with that said, and I guess these were like fans, right? So Where? Yep. I, I think that's a good time. And I'm sure at the time, and I want to put words in your mouth, but I'm sure that you knew that that was not a cool thing to do. Can yeah. you talk about, you know, how when you're using, especially something like opiates, you find yourself doing all kinds of things that you never thought you would do and becoming a person that you didn't think you would be become. Yeah. 
you know, the, it all kind of started, uh, you know, I was on Rise and um, any anytime I needed money, I would just hit them up. You know, they would send me copious amounts of money. I'd be like, hey, I, you know, I need 2000 you know, I'd call two weeks later, I need $5,000. They would just send me money. And, you know, I was spending this money on drugs, of course. And now were you just into heroin or were you at this time? I was only, I was only, um, I really wasn't doing heroin yet. I was just shooting like pills. Okay. Um, but same difference at the end of the day. It's the same thing. Um, but it's just what I was getting a hold of at the time. I was living in Kentucky. So back then it was easier to get a hold of pills than it is now from what I understand. Yeah. It was a lot, a lot easier. Um, and so I was doing that and it was just steady all the time. You know, I didn't have any problems. I never had any issues. So I never got sick. Right. I never, you know, what is, what does sick mean for someone who doesn't understand? When you get sick, when you get dope sick, it's just, I mean, you, there, there's no thinking you have one, one goal. And that goal is to stop the hurt. You know, like what happens you know, if you don't use for, you know, depending like half a day or something like that, how do you feel? My body would literally like just go into shock. Like I would have like the most intense anxiety you've ever had in your life. Your body starts to ache. You literally just can't stop using the restroom. It's just nonstop. You just feel like it's never going to end till you can make yourself well is what, you know, we call it getting yourself well. And it's just, it, it literally just, it sends your body kind of into this shock state where you, you're in pain and your brain is just telling you one thing. It doesn't matter how you get it. It doesn't matter why you're getting it. It doesn't matter who you're getting it from. You need to have that in that moment. Yeah. The moment I really realized how real this is, I was never into opiates. I was, I did like Coke and speed and stuff, but my mom, I remember uh, she died maybe five years ago or something like that. I remember they called cause like she donated her organs. And they called me and was asking questions about her like the day after she died. And they said, you know, has this been a, a, you know, does she have HIV? No, no, no. Has she ever accepted money or drugs for sex? And I was like, uh, actually, yes, she has because she was prostitute for a while when she was in her twenties. Yeah. And, you know, having to answer that call, you know, about my mom and say yes to that question was pretty fucking heavy. Like that's what you will do when you're an addict. You anything don't, you don't think <laughs> there's no thinking involved um unless it's about the drugs or how you're going to achieve them yeah so you were dope sick and you were thinking how am i gonna get well, money to i had never really been dope sick so the money was just coming in and then one day you know they call me my manager and rise and they just say hey it's just too much you know we we had to cut you off because they knew i was doing drugs obviously you know i've done them in front of them and, you know, they never really cared that much because I was always able to do my job or whatever. But it's yeah. usually a lie when people say that they're so surprised that someone yeah. was an addict. Oh, we didn't know. It's usually a lie. I mean, they knew. I mean, they did their own drugs. They never did like opiates and whatever, coke, and you know, party drugs, stuff, yeah. things that are acceptable, you know, but obviously shooting drugs is not acceptable. So, but they called me, cut me off. And I was just like, fuck. It's like, what am, what am I going to do? You know, I don't have any money. I don't have any income. And I had like an $800 a day pill habit because uh, they were $30 a pill, a dollar a milligram. So, you know, I was, was like, fuck, okay, I need to start selling things. 
legitimately, you know, wanted to start just selling my stuff. So I go on my Twitter. I had a, I had two MacBooks. Um, one I had was black. One I had was white. I had bought one for my ex at the time so she could do her school. Um, so I had bought two and I posted online, you know, hey, $800 or best offer on my Twitter. And like immediately was like 30 emails. So I was like, okay, I clicked the first one. The dude, I, I told him whatever. He said, yeah, I'll pay 800 bucks, blah, blah, blah. Said, okay, let's do MoneyGram because it was right by my house. And I didn't have a bank account at the time. And so he sent the money. And I was just like, in my head, I'm like, I, had, I haven't even like put the thing in a box. I hadn't even told him I was going to go to UPS, nothing. And without even thinking, bro, I, I just did it again and again and again and again and again and again. And so I think it was racked up like $33,000 over the course of about, I want to say just under two weeks, 33 grand. And like every day, you know, I'd wake up, answer an email boom, you know, go get, go get the drugs. Then I was fine. Do it, do it again. And, uh, you know, I had never experienced being sick. So when I got sick like that, you know, I didn't know what to do. Like I said, so I started resorting to selling things and that's where your mind goes. Right. You, know, you, don't, you don't care. Your, your possessions start to mean nothing. Things that would be like priceless to you while we're sober right now would mean nothing because I, I only wanted to not feel that pain. I think of it almost like, you know, when someone is that deep in opiates, especially, I think there's something unique about opiates in that way. When yeah. someone's that deep in an opiate addiction, it's almost like a zombie movie where like the, you know, the virus has control of their brain <laughs> and, you know, the only thing you can do is like kill them unless they're free of that virus. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, people are responsible for their actions. Yeah. But you can't really look at them as the same person as they are when they're sober because they're not. Yeah. Like I would never do if If you would ask me, would you do that if you were sober? I wouldn't even think twice about that. I'd go get a job. Right. You know, I'd go and apply for unemployment or, you know, I'd, I'd do, I'd find another option because I wouldn't be sick. So I would be able to think clearly and I would be able to make a decision of, of finding another way to to deal with my financial problems you know, this has followed you for a long time. How do you feel about that now? At this point, like, I feel like <laughs> it's kind of a joke to me now. Um, I get it. And most people that's kind of bring it up, you know, I think they're just mostly joking. Everyone got paid back. I didn't get royalties for like a million years. We made sure everyone was paid back so that there was no legal, no legal blowback, nothing like that. And I know that's still not, doesn't make it right, but uh, you know, it was a big step forward trying to um, rectify the situation for me was just trying to make that, you know, make it make it right in some way. And, you know, I tried to apologize to some of the people, some of the people I still talk to that I scam. They still hit me up. We still speak. You know, uh, a couple of people that live in the UK, I still speak to. They've come to my shows when I go over there. We we had drinks last time I was over there. So I think that for me, I moved past it, obviously. I felt like I made my peace with it. I did my best to to try to make amends to the ones that I could reach out to. And I feel like I've moved past it. And I, I, know, I know a lot of people have as well. It's funny because some people bring it up like they just found out about it yesterday or something. Right. Like I just did it yesterday. And that kind of makes me crack up and not really care as much because I'm like, okay, you, I don't know where you've been living under a rock. There's been like 800 more allegations since then. Like, why are you still stuck on that one? <laughs> 
Right. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, You can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. I guess my question is like, and I don't mean this to sound shitty, but why are you like this? Because like, I know why my stepsister was like that. It's because her her dad was physically abusive and stuff like that. I know why my mom was like that because her whole family died when she was young. Why are you like this? Because there's always, there's always a reason. They said you know. that, um, you know, I just, I just went to the, I just did like a 90 day program, you know, three months ago, you know, we, we, we talked a lot about that because a lot of people in there, you know, they have that sub trauma abuse, you yeah. know, all that type of stuff. I don't know. I had a really good upbringing as a child. None of my parents do drugs. None of them drink really. Like they don't, they, my dad drinks like 
a drink and then goes to bed. You know, he's like, he doesn't go to bars, nothing like that. So I don't know where it came from. Um, I think maybe for me, when I was just a kid, you know, I lost my grandma and that was really difficult for me. That was, I think what it is, is grief for me. I wasn't able to process that type of grief. And, you know, this last seven months that I've been sober, I, I have been working with like, you know, a therapist and a counselor and stuff. And we've been able to kind of go over some of that stuff. So I think if I had to pinpoint it, I think it just might be losing, you know, they, they say that, uh, you know, no, no parent should have their child, you know, die before them and stuff like that. But they don't really teach you as a kid, you know, how to lose someone like that, especially when that person's like your whole life. You know, my parents split up and my mom worked all the time. So I live with my grandma. She took care of us 24-7. And then I one see. day she just wasn't there. And I think that just hit me hella hard, man. I flipped a switch, you know, and then, you know, start experimenting with drugs and all that. And it just kind of went until I found the drug that made me not think or feel about that anymore. And that was opiates for me. Right. Is that something that you have tried specifically to process now that you're clean or like, how are you dealing with that? Like I said, I'm, I'm talking to the therapist. It's a long process, man. I've held on to that for a really long time. I'm like 36. You know, that happened when I was like 10 or 11, maybe. So I've held on to that for a long time. And, you know, they have grief counselors and stuff that I've been like speaking with and it's getting better. You know, they're trying to help me bring it out a little bit, but it's going to be a long road. I've held on to it for a long time and, you know, I've used it for a lot of different things, you know, to push me. Um, so I'm trying to find other ways to, to like, I guess not motivate myself, but, you know, keep myself driven. Um, cause I use that kind of hurt and that pain to just kind of keep myself going. And now I got to flip that switch and I've been dealing with it. Like I said, with the grief counselor and stuff, and we're getting there, man, we're, we're going to get there. So a lot of people, I think, would agree that the best art comes from pain. And a lot of the best vocalists, I mean, I, I think you're hands down one of the best vocalists in the scene, like by a, a mile. You've obviously also had a lot of pain in your life. To what extent do you think those things are intertwined? And, you know, is there any, any part of you that worries that your music will suffer if you feel better? I thought about that. Um, at first I really thought that way, you know, like I, I think that that is completely true. Um, and I think that at first I was like, if I get sober, am I going to be able to still be able to do what I've been doing? Am I still going to be able to have the same kind of heart and the same kind of emotion? And then I kind of processed a little bit and I did a little bit of, you know, reflecting and I just realized that I've been doing this for, you know, almost over, I've been doing this over a decade. and you know, I've really poured my heart and my soul into like all the songs, you know, I've given my life to this, you know, I've put my life on the line, my health, everything to be in these bands and be on the road and, and give that kind of pain um, to the music. And I think now that I feel better, I want to try and do the same thing, but I want to do it differently. I think I want to give it more of a I don't want to be cheesy and say positive or uplifting because, you know, that's just, that's just not something I would really say, but I, I want to go the route of, of, of not, not exactly doing the opposite of that, but I want to make my music just a little bit more, you know, cohesive to me. I, I wanted to have more than just pain and emotion. I wanted to have, you know, real structure when it comes to how I'm feeling. I, I want to be able to, to project, like I'm happy right now. 
I feel good. You know, um, for the first time in a long time, I feel I feel free of, you know, something that's been weighing me down my whole life. And I want to project that into the music. And it doesn't have to be all pain, you know. It can be good, but it can still have the emotion that it needs. You, you said you've been clean now for seven months? Yeah, uh, seven, I'll have seven months on the 18th. Which is definitely like, that's a while, but it's not like this is, you know, this is still a fairly new thing. Well, this you, is the longest um, I've ever had sober in general. Before, I would just get off the opiates and continue to drink. So now not doing anything, this is the longest I've ever had an actual clear mind. So, Do you feel like a sober person now or do you feel like you're still like trying to kind of keep it at bay or like, does that make sense? Honestly, I owe a lot of my sobriety to this shot. It's really like just turned everything around me. The first couple months when I was in the rehab, I had, I was having a horrible time. I didn't want to be there. I was depressed. You know, I felt, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going through the motions again. I'm going to get out and everything is just going to, I'm going to go in a circle again. I'm going to get out and use drugs. They asked me if I want to get on the shot. I said, okay, I'll, I'll try it. What what is it? It's called Vivitrol. And what it does. I've heard of that. Yeah. It blocks the effects of alcohol and it blocks the effects of opiates. So even if you were to use drugs or alcohol, you wouldn't feel them. Right. So I've been on it for five months now and it takes away the cravings. There's no cravings. Like I've been out for some birthday parties. Um, I had some people here recording. One of them had a birthday. We went out. They're drinking. Uh, I have no desire. Normally, like I would want to drink. I would feel out of place. Um, but I feel good. I feel I feel happy with where I'm at to not have to be like, I'm gonna I need a drink right now just because you're drinking or you're drinking. Right. Because you know, music or just the entertainment industry in general is not really the healthiest place for a recovering addict, especially someone who's pretty new. Yeah. But you feel okay about it so far. I do. Uh, I have some shows coming up, books. The the goal for me is to actually really surround myself uh, with with some good support. So the people that I'm going to be playing the shows with and stuff, they know my situation. Um, the people I've asked to work with me, play drums and stuff, I don't mind if you, you know, you're an adult. You want to go have a drink, whatever, that's cool. But I've asked specifically, like, if you're going to work with me, work for me, I don't want that around uh, until after we're done playing. Then you can go do whatever you want. You Like I said, you're an adult. But while we're you know, up into the show, all that, you know, my situation, you know, where my head needs to be. So, you know, and a lot, I, some people were just like, yeah, I don't want to do that. And then some sure. people, some people I've hired, you know, and they're like, we totally respect that. We don't really drink anyway. So there are people in this community that, uh, you know, that don't drink or, you know, do drugs and stuff. It is possible to surround yourself with a, a solid team and be able to get out there and get your job done from the way you're talking about it, it sounds like this is maybe the first time that you have like really made like an honest attempt at actually getting clean versus like going through the motions. Is that, would you say that's true or no? I a hundred percent would agree with that. It's weird. It's cause like all the times I've gotten clean before I wanted to be clean. Everything I said, I, I meant, you know, I wanted to get out of that. I didn't want to continue to keep doing that circle, but Sometimes that flip just switched in my head and, you know, I'd use, and then I got, I'm right back into the darkness and it really sucks. But for some reason, you know, I really pulled myself out of this because a, I was doing a drug that literally, you know, uh, is killing millions of people. 
I'm lucky to even be alive. You know, the amount of drugs that I was physically putting in my body a day um, is astonishing that I'm even alive. So, well, especially now with fentanyl being what right. it is, it is yeah. so fucking easy to die on that. That's what I was. I was doing just pure fentanyl. I wasn't getting pills pressed. I was literally just doing straight pure fentanyl right off the brick. I hear that it's super hard to get anything but fentanyl these days. It is. I actually just read like a report online. So our vice maybe did, I think something where they were talking about like heroin users want old heroin back because it's just, you know, not the same or whatever. But they can't get it. Yeah. There's, it's just, it's disappearing. Yeah. So you hit on something I think is, is really important. You know, that, you know, that, that a lot of people have this idea of recovery or sobriety is like, a thing like, okay, well now I'm sober and I'm never going to use again. But in reality, it's not like that. It's a process. You know, you relapse, you fuck up. And, you know, I I think I read before that it's like, it takes an average like seven times of rehab or something like that for someone to like, you know, find for it to really stick. Can you talk about that a little bit and what advice you'd have for anybody right now who's maybe trying to get sober? Um, I mean, I'm, that was, this this is my third stint of rehab. You know, the first two did not stick at all. I knew I was going to use when I got out. Um, You know, I just wasn't committed. But I was also younger. Uh, You know, you kind of, you grow up a little bit. But this last time, I just kind of realized, like, I relapsed because my son, you know, had a surgery. And, you know, I was afraid for all that. You know, you know, you have a child and you don't know if he's going to live and stuff. And I'm not going to go too deep into that. But, you know, that's why I relapsed. And then I just couldn't stop, even though he got better. And so once I wanted to get off the fentanyl so bad, and once I was able to have the opportunity to go to this rehab and stuff, I I took advantage of it, even though I knew it was going to be hard. But I just made a choice in my head to be there and to say, like, when I was there, I I have nothing against the people. And I'm not knocking it, nothing like that. Like, I just realized, like, this is not my life. This is not who I want to be or who who I am. You know, a lot of these people, they come from prison you know, straight out of prison, these programs, they're back in and out and stuff. And it's like, I don't, I don't have to do that. Right. You don't have to do that. Like you don't have to continue going down this path. You can make a choice. And I think for me, my saving grace is my son. You know, he, I I woke up every day in the rehab and said, okay, why are you going to stay sober today? I'm going to stay sober for storm. That's the reason why I'm going to do it. I'm going to continue to do it every single day, no matter what anyone says, no matter what anyone thinks, all I have to do is stay sober for that little boy. And that's it. And I used to go to a lot of AA meetings with my mom. And what they would always talk about there is, uh, you know, the moment of clarity where you have a moment where you either realize I'm going to die if I keep doing this, or you look in the mirror and you hate the person you've become. And it yeah. sounds like for you, it was maybe the second. It was both to me. I mean, I realized that I don't have any more relapses in me. Like if I relapse, I'm going to die. Right. No doubt about it. Like I can't go back to using the same amount of drugs, especially with the drug I was using. Like that was a big factor. You're rolling the dice every time. It's Russian roulette. Yeah. yeah. And especially now that I'm sober, my tolerance right. goes all the way back to zero. So if I use, I'm out, you know? And so that was, that was one that was a huge factor. They was knowing like, Hey, you don't got any more relapses in you. Like this is it. You get clean and you go out and use again. You're done. Is that what you, you know? So every, that goes to my mind every time. And of course, you know, the second one is just realizing like, hey, like this person that you have become is not the person 
that you wanted to be in life. It's not the person that the person that loved me the most, you know, which is my grandmother. That's not the person she saw. And I had to just really, really, really reflect on that, man. And that's what just set me on the path to just, you know, I have to get it done. There's no, there's no turning back. I've come too far. For the first time in my life, I've actually committed and I'm not turning back. I remember hanging out with some people who were, you know, living what I would describe as a pretty nasty, gross lifestyle. And, you know, I was like, oh, I mean, I hang out with those guys, but I'm not one of them. And then I was like, well, wait a minute. But we do the same thing every day. We hang out at the same places. We have the same friends. Like, I am one of those guys. That doesn't feel good. So for anybody who's listening that's maybe struggling, and I think for a lot of people, there's that voice in the back of their head that's like, I know that I need to make a change, but there's something preventing me from pulling the trigger and making that change. What advice would you have for them? Like, what should they do today? I think, you know, the, the, the biggest thing I can say is it's, it's when, it's when the pain becomes more than the pleasure, you know, when you, when you are ready to hit that spot and hopefully you are able to reach it without hurting anyone or damaging your life or, you know, dying. Um, I hope that they get to that spot because once you get to that spot, you know, I hope that you're able to make a real, a real decision for your life, you know, that there, there is there is a way out of this, but it has to be when you are, are completely done. Like, you know, the pain is just too much and you're ready and, and, and you know, when that is, um, you know, a lot of people they hit me up all the time, messaging me, oh, I don't know how to do this. I can't get out of this. And a lot of them, they already have the answers, right? They know what they need to do. I think that they are just scared. You know, they're scared of withdrawals or scared of getting clean because they don't know what's on the other side. Well, what's on the other side is better than what you're doing now. It is no matter what it is. It can't be any worse than, you know, living in hotel rooms can't be any worse than damaging your body and being in the ER multiple times a month. You know what I'm saying? Like it can't be any worse than sitting in a jail cell, you know, saying, Hey God, please just, you know, get me out of here. Let me get bail. You know, I, I, I promise, you know, I'll get clean. And then you get out and use drugs. It can't be any worse than these feelings. I'm on the other side. You know, I feel like I've made a complete 360 or 180 or whatever from what I was doing. You know, Not 360, yeah. 180. Yeah, 180. Uh, so I was skateboarding in my head. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I made a complete 180 in what I and what I'm doing, and it's weird. It's like it's cheesy because everyone's always like, "Get clean. All you gotta do is get clean, and all these good things will happen to you." And I'm just like, "Shut the fuck up!" Like, I'm so tired of hearing that. And then I got clean. And all these good things started to happen to me. And I'm like, oh, wow. But, you know, sometimes you, you're you not ready to hear all that it shit. It takes as long as it takes. Yeah. It, but it happens. It really does happen. If you get clean, only good things can happen. And if you stay that way, even if you're still dealing with some of these, you know, situations, there's nothing but a way out of it. You, you, you'll be able to, to figure it out because you, you, you have clarity. You'll be able to make proper decisions. Right on. Well, I got to go eat dinner with my wife, um, but thank you for coming on. Uh, I hope that people, you know, got something out of this, understood addiction a little bit more, whether that's themselves or a family member or bandmate or anything else. I hope they took something away from that. Uh, I appreciate you, uh, you know, answering the tough questions and, uh, you know, it seems like you're in a good place. I'm, I'm happy to see that.
Hey, I appreciate you having me on, man. Thank you so much. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work, but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love want to love or hate yeah imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh has impacted your life uh and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week so triangulate your speakers think about jumping off the bed singing along dancing like an idiot and listen to axe grind podcast Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.